0: Good morning. Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 10. For those of you who don't know, I spent some time with a missionary group called Jews for Jesus. I'm from a Jewish background myself, and they had something to do with my coming to know the Lord. And shortly after I was saved, they had a, they called a campaign, where they sent uh, young Jewish people to New York to share the gospel with people. We would pass out pamphlets, try to engage people in conversation. And if somebody would engage with us in a conversation, we would uh, fill out what we call the contact card and uh, keep it with us. When we went back to the office, we'd turn in the contact card. I made a contact with this person and give some information about them. And one of the things they asked us to do was to write a code for that person. And there were four possible codes. It could have been a Jewish unbeliever, so that would be a J-U. It could have been a Jewish believer, a believer meaning believer in Christ, we would call that a J-B. Or they could have been a Gentile unbeliever, that would be a G-U. Or they could be a Gentile believer, you get it? It's a GB. G-B. Okay, now as we read in Acts Chapter 10 about a person named Cornelius. That's the focus of our of our study today. Uh, see if you can determine by the end of the chapter, actually a chapter and a half, we'll read about him, which category he belongs to. Is he a, a JU, Jewish unbeliever, a JB, G-U or GB? Okay. So it's 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 important as you talk to people and you try to to serve the Lord as you're working with people, to have an idea of where they stand. Okay, so hopefully at the end of reading this chapter and a half, we'll see where Cornelius is at the beginning, because the situation will actually change halfway through. So where was he at the beginning of the passage? Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come before, come up for a memorial before God. Now, now, Send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to him and sent them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and so heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, Three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed ...by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends... As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he walked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common Oh unclean? Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with Him, and we are witnesses of all things, Which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. We have another half a chapter to go. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my house, my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house, where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who had said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. All right. That's the code that we should put by Cornelius' name. G-U. G.U.? Very good. Okay. He was a Gentile unbeliever. Now, it's hard to tell. In fact, uh, you, you might potentially find differences uh, depending on which commentator you pick, but it's very clear in uh, chapter 11, verse 14, uh, the instructions given to Cornelius... Uh, to call Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Okay, so he wasn't saved yet. Now, it's hard to tell because this is a very, we would say, godly man, a very religious person. Uh, to start with in verse uh, 2, it says he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. So this is a person who respected God. He realized God was great, and he needed to be careful how he behaved before God. That's what it means to be uh, devout and fearing God. It says with all his household. This isn't the person who was just making professions when he was you know, out in the company and out in the public. His family saw how they, he lived. And as a result, his family was also fearing God. Okay, There was a reality in this person's life. Uh, it says he gave alms generously to the people. It means the Jewish people. Because he feared God and maybe loved God, he, he cared about God's people and was trying to bless them uh with what he had it's we sometimes use the word uh, put your money where your mouth is this man did okay he was serious about the things of god and it says he prayed to god always this is a person who was seeking god in prayer and yet unsaved okay <clears throat> well the next thing we see is an angel okay? In verse 3 that by the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius, why is God sending an angel to this man? Now, as far as I can tell, up to this point in the Book of Acts, God hasn't had to interfere with things with an angel. Remember the, actually the last I believe the last time angels appear is after Jesus goes up to heaven, and the believers are just kind of standing there like that not doing what Jesus told them to do, and angels appear and like wakes them up and like, okay guys. He'll come back the way he left and that's going to be coming back in the rapture to judge how good of a job you did in the meantime, okay? You guys go and start working or oh, uh, doing what he wanted you to do. Uh, but since that point, they, the Holy Spirit has come, Pentecost has come, they've been preaching the gospel, people were saved. Uh, we saw some persecution happening after um, after Stephen gives his testimony and the persecution scatters their believers across the, the lands, and they witness in other places more people getting saved. Uh, as far as I know, this is the first time an angel appears. Actually, I may be wrong. I think for Philip, was it an angel appeared to him, or was it the Holy Spirit? might be wrong on one count. I can't remember if a spirit or an angel appeals to Philip and sends him after the... Uh, Ethiopian, so I'm going to cheat and check. Yeah, it does say an angel of the Lord. Okay, this is the second time an angel appears. (laughs) Why an angel has to show up in this case? Why an angel shows up to help Cornelius in this situation? Okay, well, there's at least two reasons I could think of. The first one is he's been fasting and praying and asking God to save him. Okay, and the Bible encourages us to do so. Uh, just reading out of Isaiah 55, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So here's a man who is seeking God and God is not going to let him down. Okay, so God will make sure this person gets saved. And he's using an angel as... Something to help him. He's giving him some clear instruction that will lead to his salvation. Okay? The other reason God had to send an angel is because the people who were responsible to help this man weren't doing their job. Okay? There were, uh, Jesus obviously gave the gospel to the apostles and, and to the church. They were witnessing and saving people but nobody has come to Cornelius to help Cornelius. And so God, God is helping them out, he's helping the situation out by sending an angel, gives Cornelius, and instead of them coming to Cornelius, Cornelius is going to summon them. And it happens to be Cornelius has a lot of power to summon someone if he wants to. Not that he's using that power in that sense, but uh, he's a centurion, he's high up in the Roman army, and he can send a soldier and a couple of servants to gather the people who should have been coming to him with the gospel and haven't, he's now summoning to him to come with the gospel. And uh, just to get a little bit of a bigger picture of what's happening, it's not just for Cornelius that this is happening. There's been a general breakdown in the passing on of the gospel. It hasn't yet crossed the barrier from the Jews to the Gentiles. There's a wall that seems to be there that really shouldn't be. And God is going to use this event to breach that wall and the gospel will really now start going out to the Gentiles. Really, the summary of this passage would be the last verse that I read. It says, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So we see now there's finally the recognition that the Gentiles can also be saved. Let's look at Cornelius' response to the angel uh, starting at verse... At verse, um, right. Right. So, starting at verse eight. So, in case I, I kind of skipped some verses here, the angel appears. He tells Cornelius, uh, Simon Peter, he's lodging with Simon Atano, and, uh, You have to read various verses to find all the things the angel tells him, but among other things it tells him, call to this man, he'll tell you words by which you will be saved. And Cornelius is responding and he's sending immediately people to get Peter, uh, which is good. Again, we've already have said the words that Cornelius was seeking God. This is where we see this man is really seeking God and wants to be saved. This is not a person, if he was a person who felt he was doing pretty good with God, because he's been such a religious person. I mean, we're impressed by this guy. If he was impressed with himself, he could have said, oh, I think there's a mistake. What do you mean I need to get saved? You know, Let me tell you about some of the things I've been doing. Me and God, we're really close together. That's not what he says. He recognizes, yes, I need to be saved. And this is critical. If you study the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus to witness to the Jews, the number one reason the Lord was rejected is because people didn't like the message that he brought. The Jews were very ready to embrace Jesus if he would have said, I've come as the Messiah, I'm going to get rid of these Romans, and I'm going to set up a kingdom, and we're going to rule over the world. Every Jew would have followed him. But Jesus says, I've come because you're sinners and you need to be saved, and and by believing in me, you can be saved. That will get you to heaven. Because he said that they were not interested. Like, wait a second, okay, we well, we're Jews. We're pretty good. We're God's special people. We've been really careful of, of following his commandments. We don't need to be saved from our sins. We need to be saved from the Romans. Were they right? They were wrong. Let's uh, read this. In, uh, I'll, I'll just read out of John, uh, in John chapter 8. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendant, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So Jesus knew the reality. They were enslaved to sin. They were under the judgment of God because of their sin. And because of that, they needed Jesus to save them from their sins. The first place you need to be in order to be saved is recognize that about yourself. Yes, I am a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I'm under the wrath of God. Because I'm under the wrath of God, I need to be saved. That's the first place a person has to come to. And clearly Cornelius has come to that point. Because when he hears he can be saved, he sends out messengers to get Peter to bring words to him so that he can be saved. Um, A second thing that we notice about about Cornelius is his attitude to Peter. Remember, Cornelius is one of the high persons of the land. He would be at least an equivalent in our country to uh, you know, somebody who's in charge of a city or a state. I mean, this is a really important person. Peter, all he knows about Peter is he lives with a tanner in the city of Joppa by the sea. Now, being a tanner, for those of you who don't don't know, means uh, taking skins of animals... And, uh, running them through some sort of a chemical process in order to make them into clothes that people actually want to wear. It's a smelly business. And that's why he had to have a house by the sea. Okay, he couldn't live in the middle of the town with the type of business that he was doing. So, for Cornelius being told that you have to summon this guy from a house of a tunnel, it's kind of reaching, reaching down to the sewers you find somebody who can tell him about, why not send me one of the great rabbis or the priest? Come on, there's got to be somebody better. But that's not Cornelius' attitude. Cornelius' attitude is like, send him. And when Peter shows up, Cornelius, it says, worships him. Like, why? Because this is a person who's bringing me God's word so that I can be saved. That that was the attitude that Cornelius had. <clears throat> and uh, the third thing we, know, we notice about it is when... Uh, When Peter actually comes, it says he found uh, in verse 24, we're skipping something, we're going to go back. uh, When Peter actually comes, he found that Cornelius gathered all his relatives and close friends. So this is a person, when the word of God was going going to come that can actually save people, he wasn't just going to make sure he was there and called for Peter. He was going to make sure all the people he loved, all his relatives, all his friends were there to also hear the word and be saved. Again, that's the heart of Cornelius. This was a person hungry for the gospel, a person hungry to be saved. This is a rare person. <laughs> it's not easy to find people in that state, but that's the state Cornelius was in. He was hungry. He was ready. He wanted to be saved. Okay. Verse 9, we see the beginning of a vision. Right, there's this sheet that comes down from heaven on it. There's all kinds of animals. Uh, suggests here that they were unclean animals. What that means, for those of you who don't know, in uh, the Old Testament, there's some um, dietary restriction that God gives to the Jews. He says, don't eat this animal and that animal, they're unclean. Okay, so the Jews, it says, according to Peter, he's never, ever eaten any food like that. So, some things the Jews seem to have been pretty good at, and this was one of them. Okay, we can do that. We're not going to eat these particular animals um, and so that's something that they were holding on to. Well, now, now, in this vision that God gives to Peter, a sheep comes with all these foods, or all these animals, and he gives Peter instruction to eat those animals. And Peter, somewhat understandably, said, uh, no, I don't think I'm supposed to eat it. People point out that there's a contradiction here to say, not so, Lord. There is a contradiction. Uh, if he says to do it, I should do it. Okay, but it's understandable after being taught this, that God doesn't want us doesn't want you to eat these foods, and all your life not eating them, There being such a strong taboo against them in your culture, Peter is like, wait, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. Okay. Why is this vision here? Now, it happens to be that the very first Bible study I ever went to, I was completely unsafe, completely uninterested in the things of God. I was uh, supposed to be studying for an exam in college, and... Uh, a guy from across the hall invites me to a Bible study and he challenged you better than studying for my exam. So that's the only reason I went. The only reason I went. They happened to be studying this passage, maybe either just verses 9 through 16 or maybe a section, a larger section that contained it. And, um, I was thinking, well, you know, it's, it's something about stopping to eat, uh, you know, removing the restriction on eating Non-kosher foods. You know, somehow Peter is removing it or God is removing it or that's what it's about. It's very unlikely that that's God's purpose here because it just doesn't belong in the passage. The passage is about the saving of the Gentiles. And we see, we see Peter recognize it himself in the verse 28. He says, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter is very clearly taking this as a vision of God instructing them, instructing him with the attitude he should have toward the Gentiles. Well, why? Why is it here? Well, because the Jews had a problem. Now, I need to be careful. I'm saying the Jews. I'm talking about the Church of God. Okay, the Church of God that at this time was composed mostly of Jews. It seems like the Samaritans have kind of joined in now, and there may have been a few Gentiles that were saved. We don't know, but uh, overall, the mentality in the church was uh, not for the Gentiles. Okay, the the gospel. The gospel has come. God is saving us. We're not going out to the Gentiles. Uh, why? Why were they not going out to the Gentiles? <clears throat> it could be, it could be that doctrinally some of them still believed that Gentiles can't be saved. Uh, and and this has to do with the history. Uh, for, for thousands of years, about two thousand years, God has somehow focused his work on the Jewish people. And, and maybe they didn't realize that that stopped. Now, Jesus made it very clear that that's no longer the case. When he gave what we call the Great Commission, he said, you need to go and preach the gospel to every nation. Nation. Okay, that's somehow the Jewish nation is just one nation. You know, you got to start going beyond that. And the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, you need to be preaching the gospel to every creature. All right, well, the Gentiles are included. Sorry, the creatures too. You can't You can't exclude them out. Uh, in Ephesians, it says it very clearly. Uh, this is a lengthy passage, so you may want to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> it says... Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So you have here the two halves from verse 11 to 13. he talks about the fact there used to be a distance. Uh, the Gentiles uh, were without Christ. They were aliens or uh, outside of the commonwealth of Israel. They were stranger from the covenants of promises. The promises God has made, he made to the Jews. Okay, so after this point, there was no... There was no strong evidence, and certainly whatever suggestion there were, the Jews were quick to forget, that God was interested in the Gentiles. This was something new. Uh, And that's why God can say, what God has cleansed, you must not call common, because now God has cleansed the Gentiles. Now God was working just as much among the Gentiles as among the Jews. In fact, there's almost a transition where God is focusing more on the Gentiles whereas the nation of the Jews as part of judgment for the rejection of Christ is is said to be partly hardened. Um, but it's, anyways, the, the, the mentality of the Jews, what we're focusing on, clearly God has now accepted the Gentiles. God is here working to deliver them from this restriction they have in their mind against going and witnessing to the Gentiles. But it's very clear that it's, it's very strong in the Jewish mind at the time. And just to show that, uh, looking at the end of the passage, we read... In verse 45, after the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles and demonstrates that they were saved, it says, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Unbelievable. (laughs) The Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles. Okay. that's That was their mentality that God was trying to deliver them uh, from. And Peter asking the words, can anyone forbid water to these who have now received the Holy Spirit? Why is he asking the question? Because he knows some would forbid water. They would forbid these people from being baptized. And then in the beginning of chapter 11, when Peter shows up, it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles received the word of God. Praise God. No, they're attacking Peter. You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were angry with Peter still for going and getting all these people saved. Okay, so God had a lot of work to overcome. And is uh, the Jewish minds. Now, just to try to broaden it out a little bit, we can beat up on the Jews as much as we want to. But uh, this is a problem the church has age after age in crossing boundaries with the gospel. I know it's not a problem anybody here has, so we'll talk about other people. But I've recently been, been listening to a uh, um, biography on William Carey, for those of you who don't know. William Carey is considered the father of modern missions, uh, lived about uh, two, 300 years ago. And uh, he, he was the one in his day that started looking at, at people in Africa, in India, in China, to which the gospel at that point has not gone to yet and said, isn't there some sort of a responsibility we have as Christians today to try to reach those people? And when he went to his denomination and, and suggested it, he was basically shut down and said, "No, no, no. God wants to save them. He's going to have to start a new Pentecost. You know, well, we're going to need some major revolution to reach these people." They were thinking of all the hurdles that were lying. So it could be among one of the hurdles there might have been some racism. Well, these are black people; they're not as important as us white people. Let's reach the white people with the gospel. Uh, a lot of it could have been practical. They're far away. You know, how are we going to reach these people? Well. Kerry pointed out, well, we have boats that people take to those places to take these people out as as slaves or to do commerce with them. So people who want to make money out of these people, they'll cross the ocean. Why shouldn't we cross the ocean with the gospel that's going to save people? Uh, What about their language? You know, we can't talk their language. Well, you know, it's a lot of work, but we can do it. Isn't it worthwhile to learn a new language so we could share the gospel with them? what about our provisions you know who's how are we going to make a living in that land who's going to provide for us here in england we have these nice churches with uh, you know 30 or 50 or 100 people that are supporting you know the me as a pastor if i go there who's going to take care of me well isn't it you know reasonable to trust the lord for your care isn't it reasonable to suffer some amount of deprivation for the sake of, of bringing the gospel to people. So it was a battle that William Carey had to fight, and eventually he had to go first <laughs> to be the example. But the result was he's now considered the father of modern mission because many people followed him. He started out in India, but people followed him like uh, Hudson to China, and people followed him to Africa. And today we look, and there's missionaries in almost every country in the world, maybe every country in the world that allows missionary, and probably some that don't, will have missionaries, people working, trying to reach but uh, there tends to be in our hearts a barrier to reach the gospel. We come up with reasons of why not to do it, and God has to overcome that. So God was working it in the heart of the Jews in this passage. Uh, he was working in uh, England in the time of William Carey, and I believe he's working in our hearts today and wants to help us bridge that that uh, difficulty that we might have sharing the gospel with somebody next to us or somebody far away God wants to use us with. <clears throat> Okay, um, it's interesting to me, if you look at the vision of Peter, the whole thing starts with Peter getting really hungry in verse 10. It says, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. And while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And uh, I was thinking, was God trying to communicate something? Very hungry. How does God feel about reaching out to people who haven't heard the gospel? of reaching people to be saved. And I, I picked just a few verses from the, from the gospels. This is the Lord talking about, uh, bringing people to heaven in a parable. And he says, and the Lord said unto his servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house might be filled. Go out everywhere and compel them to come. Uh, In Luke it says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. I used to think that it meant that the angels are rejoicing. It doesn't say that. It says there is joy in the presence of the angel over one sinner that repents. Where is that joy? It's in the heart of God over one sinner that repents. And then the last one, uh, we were really talking about that this morning as we do almost every Sunday. It says, For God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How much did God want them to come? He gave the life of his only son to bring them in. And all he asked us to do is share the gospel. Share the gospel. <clears throat> okay, just to, uh, to finish up, we'll focus now on verses 34 through 43, where you have the sharing of the gospel. The sharing of the gospel. So Peter was summoned, Peter has come, and Peter will share. And uh, just as a little bit of a background, something to think, this is really the grace of God at work. If you think about it, the angel could have shared the gospel, right? I mean, he angel could talk. Angel, angel was very faithful in transmitting the message that God gave him to share. And yet God has decided to put the gospel in what they a Bible called earthen vessels. These bodies. In me there is a knowledge of the gospel that the Bible calls a treasure because if I can transmit that knowledge to somebody else and that person believes it, that person is saved and goes to heaven. And and so it's really our privilege that God is working in us to get us to share the gospel. That's that's something we should be happy about. Praising God We have a place in his plan of saving people. I have a knowledge of the gospel. So what is the gospel that can save people? Uh, I'll go ahead and reread verses 34 through 43. Then Peter opened his mouth. Actually, I'll I'll skip down to verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel. Again, the word. Remember, the angel said he will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is laudable. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. Okay, those are the words, more or less, that Peter shared with Cornelius and all those that were there with Cornelius. And at the end, when they believed, they were all saved. Okay, so my suggestion to you, if you're not saved and you are seeking to be saved, as Cornelius was seeking to be saved, pay attention to these words. Okay, the first one, we have verse 36, is kind of a summary, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. The word of the gospel is preaching peace through Jesus Christ. If you remember, I mentioned at the beginning that the Bible says we're sinners. We have offended God. And as a result, we are under the judgment of God. So preaching peace through Jesus Christ means God is making us an offer of peace, of forgiveness. He's going to, instead of us being under the wrath of God, we will have peace with God. Okay? And that's going to happen through Jesus Christ. But it says, it's, if you will come to Jesus, if you will trust him, um, it says this in John, As many as received him, to them he gave the right the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you will come to Jesus and receive him as your Savior, trust him to save you from your sins, you will be saved. You will have peace with God. Okay, That is the summary of the Gospel. Now, the rest of the passage gives you excellent reason to do just that. Okay, To trust in Jesus to save you from your sins. But all you have to do is trust Jesus to save you from your sins and you will be saved. Okay, What are the reasons given of why we should trust Jesus to save us from our sins? Well, the first one given is um, looking at verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed, by the devil, for God was with him. So the first reason, he says he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power. And that anointment was evidenced by his doing miracles. So he went around doing good. What kind of good? Well, he, he drove demons out of people. He healed people from sicknesses. He fed people. He made food enough to feed an army out of a few loaves of bread and fishes. Now, there's a danger. <clears throat> Some people look at this life of Jesus, which was good. Jesus was doing good. And they say, well, this should be our priority. You know, we should be taking care of people's needs. And that's nice. We should take care of people's needs. We should help people that are sick. We should, uh, feed people that are hungry. A- any kind of help we can give people is good. But the purpose this was done was a sign or anointment. It says anointed by the Holy Spirit. The word Messiah literally means the anointed one. And in biblical times, they would anoint three types of people. They would anoint the king. They would pour oil on his head. They would anoint a prophet. Again, anointing just meant putting oil on his head. They would anoint the high priest, put oil on his head. Well, the anointment was really a sign that these people were dedicated for a special task by God. So, Jesus was anointed to mark him that he has a special task assigned to him by God. And that task was to be our savior from our sins. Now, This was often confused, Uh, so I was going to read just one verse about that. This is from John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the multitude with bread. And the multitude were very interested, and they came back to Jesus the next day. And Jesus said to them, you know, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. The purpose of the miracle was to show that God has set his seal and saying, this is the one you need to come to be saved. So That's, that's why Jesus was doing the miracles. That's one reason to come to Jesus is God has set his seal upon him and said, this is the one I sent to save you. So if you want to be saved from your sins, that's a good person to go to, the one whom God has set his seal on. This is the one I sent to save you. The next uh, reason we're given in verse uh, 39, it refers to Jesus' death. <coughs> Why is Jesus' death so important? And in fact, if you don't share the fact that Jesus died for somebody's sin, you haven't really shared the gospel with them. Uh, there's a summary in 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 15 of the Gospel, and says that, uh, just to make sure I get it right, I'll turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the Gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, talking about the Gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If you omit those three facts, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus rose from the dead and that it was all done according to the scriptures, you didn't really fully share the gospel with people. Okay, why? Why is it so important to tell someone that Jesus died for their sins? Well, <clears throat> uh, let me read from Romans chapter 3, describing what Jesus did, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What this verse is saying is that God set up Jesus on the cross and allowed everybody or to see him publicly killed to demonstrate his righteousness because there was no other way God could be righteous and forgive your sins and so so that people would know that God has provided a righteous uh substitute or has created a righteous way by which he can forgive them their sins he put Jesus forward and had him crucified where everybody could see him god you could imagine god having doing it in a corner Like, I don't want everybody to see my son die. He has to die, but I'll do it in a corner because I don't want him shamed publicly. No, for the sake of us knowing that God has provided a righteous means by which we can be saved, Jesus died publicly. And so we have a basis to trust in God to save us from our sins because he put Jesus forward and showed him dying for our sins. We know that there's a righteous way I can be saved. The wages of sin is death. The only way God for, could forgive our sins is by Jesus paying that penalty for our sins. Uh, the, next, the next point that uh, is in this passage in Acts chapter 10 and in 1 Corinthians 15 too, in verse 40, it says, Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, after he rose, after Jesus died, he rose from the dead. The Bible says God raised him from the dead, and it says that this was such uh, a significant act that God expects us to be assured that He will judge people for their sins at the end at the end of the world. And this is how it says it in Acts. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day by which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God thinks that the resurrection of Jesus was such powerful evidence that he considers it assurance. That's it. I've given my assurances. Nobody has any more reason to doubt that one day I will judge the world and people will have to give an account and that the very judge who will judge them is Jesus Christ because I have raised him from the dead. God thinks that that's good enough evidence that you should believe. Uh, The last evidence that I mention is in verse 43. It says, To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. What what God is saying there is, look, I've given you the Bible, okay? I've given I've given you the prophecies. Now I know people today tend to reject and say, well, you know, how do I know that this isn't just made up? How do I know that uh, all these prophecies about Jesus weren't just written after Jesus fulfilled them? Well, I, I didn't have it that easy uh, when I when I started coming out to church. I mentioned uh, <clears throat> Jews for Jesus was involved. One of the things that God used to save me was meeting with an elder, actually, not here, Rick, from this church. And Rick started showing me prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament. Well, I knew that my people, the Jewish people, believed in the Old Testament. Now, this is important when you think about it because... Jews today reject Jesus as the Messiah, right? Now, they have the Old Testament. It's the same Old Testament that has prophecies that point to Jesus. How is it possible that after Jesus, somebody wrote the Old Testament, handed it to the Jews and say, hey, you guys believe in it. It has all these prophecies about Jesus. And expect them to, they would have thrown the book away immediately. The fact that Jews hold on to the Old Testament, show they had it before Jesus came. The prophecies that point to Jesus from, from his birth in Bethlehem, uh to uh being born by a virgin, to being crucified, to rising from the dead, all of that were things that God promised in the Old Testament. And so to me I had to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. When I when I saw the old the, the prophecies in the Old Testament I realized the prophecies you know were written before Christ. Here Christ comes and he fulfills them. I cannot reject him as the Messiah. Now, I wasn't just saved because I still had other things I was dealing with. I didn't realize I was a sinner. I didn't realize Jesus needed to save me from my sins. But intellectually, I had to conclude this is the one God sent as the Messiah for the Jewish people. So these are the four reasons that were given to us why we should believe in Jesus and trust him to save us from our sins. Remember, that is the gospel. If you trust Jesus to save you from your sins... He will save you from your sins. And the evidence we have of that, one of the strongest evidence is in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. You don't have to believe the message plus be baptized because these persons were not baptized yet. You don't have to believe the message plus become a kind of a good person or change or do anything else. All you had to do was believe the message and you will be saved. Uh, I had a friend I was speaking to that knows a lot of the gospel. He's he's come to this church a lot. And uh, he struggles in believing the gospel or believing that he can be saved because he thinks that he needs to change. I need to believe the gospel and then I need to start living like a good person. And I can't do. I can't believe that I can change. You know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm such a rotten sinner, and there's no way I can change as a person. That's not what God asks you to believe. God asks you to believe not that you can change yourself, but that Jesus can change you. He says, "Come to Jesus, trust in Jesus. He is the one that will do the work. He gave them the Holy Spirit. It was a it was a miraculous change that God had to work in their life." In the same way God has to work a miraculous change in your life. But it's something that God can do through the Lord Jesus. So come to him. Come to him today. Lord, we thank you for your precious interest in us. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to die for our sins and providing this perfect way of salvation for us. Thank you that you continue to hunger for souls and see people being saved. And as you didn't give up on Cornelius, we know you won't give up on any person that seeks you. Lord, we pray for people here that don't know you, that if, uh, if they haven't started seeking for you, that they'll start seeking for you sincerely. We pray uh, if uh, they've been seeking you and have somehow uh, not understood the gospel until now, that now that they've understood that all they have to do is trust in you, You've done all the work that they will come and put their faith in you. We pray for the rest of us, Lord, that have been given this precious message of the gospel, that you will take away any barriers in our hearts that we might be willing to go out and share the gospel with others. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.